If I could redo the title of this sermon, I would probably retitle it, He Who Has Ears to Hear. Not because I'm going to spend a whole lot of time on that particular sentence, but it really just captures what I think a lot of this text highlights. Uh, The need to actually listen and be prepared to hear the truth. Because even we can become dull of hearing and miss the truths that are right in front of us when God's word is read and proclaimed. And we'll see more of what I'm talking about as we unpack this text. But here in Matthew 11, Jesus has, has been clarifying the ministry of John the Baptist, the great Old Testament prophet, if you will, who was called to prepare the way of the Messiah. And we pick up his elaboration as we start our examination of this text in verse 12. So we got kind of cut off last week. But verse 12 says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And by the way, some of your translations, as you guys are reading along with me, might notice it and might read a little bit different in some of your translations. And that's actually okay. This is apparently one of the harder verses to translate in the New Testament. Uh, it, it, it's unclear whether this could refers to the kingdom suffering violently or coming violently. It's, the text is a little bit vague from people pushing the gospel forward boldly or people being boldly persecuted. And both are frankly true. (laughs) Both happen regularly, um, where either those who are of the kingdom of heaven will suffer violence and persecution. As, As we've been reading, that happens, as we spent all of chapter 10 really describing, so we don't have to go into much detail. In fact, John the Baptist is, in this chapter, we're told he was in prison. So that's John the Baptist right there being persecuted, the kingdom suffering violence. But also, the heaven. Uh, it could be translated that the kingdom of heaven comes boldly through passionate proclaimers of the gospel, spreading the good news passionately throughout the world, like John the Baptist was. So both make sense of the context. So whichever it is, uh, it's... Uh, it, it makes sense of the, the greater context that we're, that we're seeing here in the text. Either way, John finishes his remarks about John beginning in verse 13, where again he said, For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This refers to, as we read a minute ago, the last two verses of the last chapter of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, The very last prophetic utterance before the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments was this promise that Elijah, the Old Testament prophet from the book of 1 Kings, would come before the day of God's judgment, referred to often as the day of the Lord or the tribulation. I mean, just read the book of Revelation. That's what it's talking about. And there's a bit of confusion about this text, about what what does it mean for John the Baptist to be Elijah? 
Because in the Gospel of John chapter 1, he's asked, you know, are you Elijah? Because they were looking for this prophet to come. And John said, no, I am not. But here he says he is. Interesting. Why is that? Is this a contradiction in the scripture? No, not at all. It's it's not hard to understand when you look at the whole picture. And I hope you don't mind me taking a moment to unpack this, because I've heard it explained very poorly uh, many, many times growing up. So John is not literally Elijah. That's one bad explanation I've heard. But he's not literally Elijah. That would have been a contradiction if he had said that. But when John's father, Zechariah, encountered an angel in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it said that he would go in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he was not literally this reincarnated Elijah of old. That would have been strange anomaly, and it would have been a contradiction for him to say no if that was the case. But rather, no, he came in the spirit and power, which is why he could say no to the Pharisees. And by spirit and power, here's what I mean. What was John the Baptist's message? It was repentance. It was turn from your sins, turn from your idol worship, turn from all these things that you were doing, running away from God, and turn back to him. And then consider what was Elijah's message back in 1 King. It was the same message. It was repent. It was to turn from your sins, to stop worshiping all these worthless idols and turn back to the living God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the same message boldly proclaimed to this, to their respective generations. That's the same spirit and power because it's the same message. But moreover, Elijah did return before that day of the Lord that we read about. In fact, we're going to see when he did six chapters from now in our journey through, um, journey through Matthew. We're in chapter 17. Jesus will be on the Mount of Transfiguration. And who's going to be there? Moses and Elijah. Interesting. A literal coming of Elijah before the coming in day of, of the day of the Lord. And we'll also see Elijah in Revelation chapter 11, as I firmly believe he's one of those two prophets ministering in the end times. We'll, we'll have to unpack that another time. That's a whole nother message. But in short, John the Baptist came in that spirit and power, in that same ministry that Elijah had. But Elijah literally returned in Matthew 17 to fulfill that literal prophecy and will literally come again later at the time of tribulation to fulfill all of these prophecies to fill, to, uh, so that God kept his word through the whole way. And there is no contradiction in all of this. A lot of people are quick to paint it one way or the other, but that's the truth. That is who John the Baptist is and is not. In the scriptures. But what about the people of this generation that he's ministering to? Jesus changes the focus from John to his detractors in verse 16 of our text this morning, where he goes on to say, What shall I compare this generation? 
It is like a children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. (laughs) Apparently, years ago, there were two popular games that children would play in the playground or playground in the marketplace while their parents did business uh, in the marketplace. And those games were wedding and funeral. And that seems odd to us today, but we must remember 2,000 years ago in first century Jewish culture, those were the two big social events that would happen. The whole family, the whole neighborhood, the whole community will come out for these things. And keep in mind, kids, even today, they imitate the world around them. They imitate what we put in front of them. And the same way they imitated these big social events. And part This is pure speculation, but I can't help but wonder if maybe there was a game of this going on when Jesus was saying this. Because Jesus was teaching in the city, according to verse 1 of our text. So some kids could have been playing this game very well in the background. But what I do know is that the kids would dance during the game of wedding, and they would be mournful and act sorrowful, imitating what they saw their parents doing at a funeral service. They, 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 that, they, they would imitate that. And Jesus here is bringing to mind a picture of a child who no matter what game they were playing, always wanted to play the other one. A self-focused unsatisfiable, contrarian little brat that is never happy with whatever is going on. Always wanted to play the other game. And let's face it, we all knew that kid growing up. And if you can't pick out in your circle of friends which one it was, might have some bad news for you. But I didn't say anything. Jesus is saying that this generation that they were ministering to is like that child. Having hearts that were predetermined to reject whatever God was doing at that time. Whatever Jesus or John did, they were ready to reject it. As verse 18 highlights, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And John, of course, did eat and drink. Obviously, he didn't fast his entire life. But no doubt this refers to his frequent fasting, which was right in line with his outward calls of humility and repentance. And yet they say he was demon-possessed. Because after all, Why else would somebody take their religious conviction seriously? Jesus, on the other hand, was neither a glutton or a drunkard. But, you know, once you decide in advance you don't like someone, everything, everything about them is wrong. I'm sure you guys have noticed this. Just look to American politics. Person on the other side of the aisle, nothing but demons. Nothing but yahoos and nutjobs. I'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute. 
But by the way, I know that term friend of sinners. When we read how Jesus is being called a friend of sinners here, you know, that's thrown around in the church these days as a badge of honor. But we must remember in the first century, that wasn't a compliment. That's not what it meant back then. It had a negative connotation. It was implying that Jesus was as corrupt as the company he kept. With all the tax collectors, adulterers, and prostitutes he was reaching out to, people were saying, oh, you're, you're just like them. That was the connotation people were trying to say about Jesus. But the reality wasn't so, as you know. When Jesus was around sinners, Jesus doesn't sin. He's not a man of weak conviction like so many others are. Nor does he encourage their sin, but rather he lifts them up and calls them out of their sin. That's what Jesus was doing there. Let me use a slightly different analogy. You know, when you place an item into water, the item gets wet. And once it's immersed, the water is everywhere. It's going to affect that item in some way, shape, or form when you place it into water. And that, that's kind of the, the picture that you get when you read ver- biblical proverbs like 1 Corinthians 15, 33 that says, bad, corrup- bad company corrupts good character. And there's a reason why the Bible says, you know, don't be immersed with the wrong people. It will affect us. The, that, that, there's a point to be said there, but it's not so with Jesus. It's the opposite, in fact. Pardon the strange analogy I'm about to go with, but I think there's a point here. In that sense, in talking about immersing something in another object, it's almost like tea. Jesus is like tea in that regard. When you place most items in water, the item gets wet. When you place tea in water, it changes the water. Jesus is like that. You place most of us into the culture. The culture is prone to change us. When you place Jesus in culture, he changes the culture around him. That's what Jesus does. He's not affected by the darkness. He he dispels it in that sense. And it changes not just the culture, but individual sinners like you and me. And they go, as we did, from darkness to light. But yet, the people of that time weren't happy about it either. These people, like children, were complaining about the company Jesus was keeping, as if it was a bad thing for these outcasts, these people who were doing, you know, bad things, you know, prostitutes, tax collectors, you know, as if it's a bad thing that they're turning from their lifestyles and turning back to God. They're complaining about that too. Because everything was unsatisfactory for them. John, on one hand, might have been accused of taking your religion too far with his radical calls of repentance and fasting. Jesus, on the other hand, was accused perhaps of not taking his religion far enough by not keeping all the traditions of the elders and the Pharisees of the time that they had just made up. And the great irony is that these two ministries of John and Jesus, the radical repentance and fasting and the calls to rejoicing and celebration, are funny enough, two sides of the same coin. They're not different. Because yes, Jesus 
did celebrate at the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. But he also fasted for 40 days in the wilderness in Matthew 4. John went to the tax collectors, or Jesus rather, went to the tax collectors, thieves, and prostitutes, but he also called them to repentance. He said his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but he also said that if we even love our families more than him, we are not worthy of him. We just covered that scripture just a few weeks ago. And yet none of these are contradictions. There are two sides of this beautiful coin that is Jesus. And the fact that we love God deeply, we love him from the heart. And that motivation from the heart causes our actions to change. Not the other way around. But these people, despite what they would say, they didn't love God. They had no place in their hearts for God. These people that Jesus is a liking to children. Because Jesus would later say in John 14, if you love me, you would keep my commandments. Simply put, you can't love someone and it have no effect on your life. That's a contradiction of terms. You know, when I met my wife many, many years ago, you know, I restructured my life to be around her, to spend more time with her. You know, to, to, I got rid of other things in my life to make more room for this new priority that I had found. And now after, <laughs> funny enough, after 11 years of marriage, now we just celebrated that yesterday, there are plenty of things I do and do not do because of that same love for her. Because that love and my love for her changes my lifestyle. And then you add to fact my kids. I do things and don't do things because I love them. I'm looking around the room. I'm seeing grandparents in the room. You guys know that feeling. It's the same with them. And when I encountered Jesus, it was the same way. I was blessed to realize early on in my life that if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, well, then that means some things in my life need to change. Not just out of fear or terror of what might happen, but out of just love. I I wanted to make more room in my life for this Savior that I had come to know and understand. And I don't do it perfectly, nobody does, but the desire to do so is there. But the same could not be said of these people that we've been reading about. They would neither take place in the joy of the celebration nor the the solemn repentance and fastings that God had called them to. The the holy joy or the the holy brokenness, they, they had no part in either. They were utterly unmoved. They were lukewarm. And in terms of their spirituality, it was useless. It was dead religion. Now let's stop right there for one second. Is that you? Is that us? Because look, I'll be the first to point a finger at myself. I've, I've listened to thousands of sermons. I know firsthand how easy it is to, to think about somebody else when we're reading a passage like this. But we have to ask, is it us? Is it I? 
When we talk about radical repentance and turning away from our sins, does that include you? Does that include your sin? Or do you think that these messages and these calls to repentance, to turn our lives around, to live our lives for God and to turn away from our sins, that that doesn't apply to us for some reason? As if they're any less severe than anyone else in this room. Or are we like these children making excuses to not follow God, making excuses for our sins, making excuses of why we don't need to repent in the same radical way that they had to? Are we listening? Or are we dull of hearing? And again, you know, I'm not above this. When, when, when I read the scriptures myself, you know, I, I, I make the mistake of, now I can, I can read the account of, say, the crucifixion, for instance, and I find myself getting mad at the Pharisees and all the bad things that they did, rather than realizing, wait a minute, that was my sin as well that contributed towards the cross. Jesus died for my sins. It was my sins that sent him there. I was just as much of a partaker through my disobedience that the Pharisees were. So I'm getting mad at somebody else instead of weeping for my own sin. So I want to challenge each of us, myself included, when we read passages like this, when I, when I, do we hear these radical calls to repentance and love for Christ that Jesus is calling me to? Or have I become lukewarm when his word is proclaimed, either publicly in a place like this or when I'm reading the scriptures for myself in private? Do I make excuses for myself or do I always maybe paint myself as the hero in the story? <laughs> always making myself, you know, when I'm reading a passage in the scripture, I'm always identifying with the good guy, but never the villain because your pride will make you do that. We often imagine ourselves to be King David when he's slaying the giant Goliath. Oh, but it's somebody else when he sins with Bathsheba. Somebody else with his sins of passivity with his son Absalom. It's always somebody else when David's sinning. Oh, but it's us when we're the conqueror. Oh, that's the biggest mistake I see in the church. We read ourselves into the wrong characters when we read the Bible. We need to be open to when the Bible challenges us, not just receiving its affirmations, but its convictions. You know, that being said, the apostles made many mistakes. But when you read about their most glorious moment happened during the Last Supper. You guys know this story. That around the table when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, all the apostles said, is it I? That was their biggest, most glorious moment. The humility and recognition of the, their own depth of depravity, their own capacity for sin, their own capacity to be the bad guy. And, not, and they weren't all looking around like, oh, pff, I know it's that guy. Oh, it must be Peter. Oh, it must be this person. They all looked inward and said, oh, goodness, Lord, is it, is it I? Please don't tell me it's I. That is the kind of humility, fear of sin, and lack of confidence in the flesh that the church so desperately needs as a whole today.
But these people would have been critical of Jesus and John no matter what they did. However, they couldn't argue with the results of his ministry. As the last verse in our text concludes by saying, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Do you know what detractors and complainers usually accomplish? Nothing. They usually accomplish nothing. I heard one person tell me that anyone can do demolition work. It's easy to knock something down. An unskilled child can knock something down. And anyone who's ever had a three-year-old in their house knows this. But it takes a skilled architect to build something. It takes a skilled architect to build something that will last and endure and endure for generations even. Anyone can set up a shack in the woods, but as I'm standing here in a 150-year-old plus church, when they laid the foundations, they knew what they were doing. And the same could be said of the founders of the of the greater church as a whole, Jesus and the apostles. <laughs> because people have hated and scoffed at the church for thousands of years. But you cannot argue with how the message of the cross has changed so many lives over the generations. The, I, I, I've seen how much Jesus has transformed my own life. And you have also heard Amazing testimonies of people who've been radically changed by encountering Jesus. Such testimonies are only possible because of the grace and power of God and his ability to completely transform our lives. You can't argue, you can argue all you want about your own feelings or what you want to do, or I want to play this game, or I want to play that game. But you cannot argue that there is power in the name of Jesus to transform lives. I've experienced this. I know many of you have experienced it. And my prayer for each of you is that we all have that encounter of the transforming radical power of Jesus in our lives. So in conclusion... With that in mind, actually, I anticipate plenty more naysayers as this church will continue to go about doing ministry because they will always be detractors and naysayers. But I say that truly believing from the heart that I still believe the best days of this church can still lay ahead for us if we keep pressing forward by the grace of God. And those who do press forward will be vindicated before those con- contractors, before uh, detractors, because of what the fruit of this ministry will be if we hold fast to these truths. I can't wait to see what God is going to do. Thanks be to God. Amen.